it's hard to not compare it to a few good men because of the trial aspect of it. Yeah. And, and so in a few good men, you get drunken Tom Cruise coming to the realization that he wants to go after uh, Colonel Jessup, right? He, he he comes to this revelation and stuff when he gets his win back and all that. But you never see him really prepare the way Alec Baldwin is preparing here. Like he's literally sitting in bed, going over these notes, building up the hype for this big finishing speech, and it's it's a very moving speech, but not like it's okay. I don't know. You, you would expect a, a Grand Slam home run from Alec Baldwin, some right. some Glen Gary, Glenn Ross type shit to come out of him, and we really don't get that. We get you know just a very standard courtroom procedural sort of thing. Yeah. Welcome to another episode of a podcast directed by. So this is our last episode of the month. Uh, we're finishing off uh, Rob Reiner movies uh, with Ghosts of Mississippi and The Bucket List. So we're, we're going to start with Ghosts of Mississippi, which is, uh, for me, a movie I actually had seen uh, when it first came out uh, because my dad was my dad was a history teacher, uh, big history fan. So like every movie that came out about American history, he wanted to see. So I saw this with him. And I remember it getting a lot of publicity, mainly for James Woods. This was back before we knew James Woods was an actual racist uh, and not just an actor playing a racist. Maybe this is the, you know, the greatest uh, method acting of all time. He just went too deep uh, when he was at Coast of Mississippi and came out super fucking conservative. Uh, this is a I don't know what you think about this movie. We haven't talked about this off mic yet, um, but this is definitely a weak spot in this month for me. Um, it is, there are better movies about, about race. Uh, there are better movies in Rob Reiner's filmography that are set in a courtroom. So everything just seems like kind of a step down, especially after our kind of Aaron Sorkin doubleheader, uh, last week. So what did you think about Ghost of Mississippi? Two stars. Two I just stars? I had to double check because I watched, <laughs> I watched the song. about right. Uh, two days after Christmas is oh, April. Nice. We're recording this. Nice. <laughs> so I was way ahead of this. Uh, I had no experience with it because I remember, uh, God, I would have been 13, 14 when this came out. Mm-hmm. That I just thought that looks boring. That was my general, you were right. like take, <laughs> and I I was right. Trust a trust an early teen to give you, <laughs> you know, good filmmaking tips. There, boring Reiner. Don't do this anymore. Uh, I get. I had to remember what my takeaway was because I did not enjoy it. I remember that. But I'm like, why did I give it two stars? Why did I not, not give it a half star? And according to Two Days After Christmas, Mike, I enjoyed uh, Alec Baldwin mm-hmm. and how he's casually kind of racist here or his casual bias. Right. Uh, but the movie's pretty quick to want to get him to see the light yes. and take on the white savior role. Did not enjoy that. Um, the movie I kept thinking about, I think, you know, for this month, obviously, you can go to A Few Good Men for for the courtroom section of it but i to be honest barely remember any of the courtroom stuff here because it's it's because it's all like we talked about with a few good men you have the give and take but like the courtroom stuff other than you know byron dillebeck was just like racist ramblings like it's just like people speechifying you know and that's all it is and they're well-written speeches but like they don't really they didn't really hit for me it's more um a civil action for me where it's a uh, sort of well-established, possibly like well-off attorney uh, who is taking a case to just basically make himself feel better about, mm-hmm. you know, doing something. Oh, I'm, I'm a good person. So I will good do a good thing. And then I can enjoy the fruits of all of my goodness without really examining himself. Uh, I thought of a civil action, which comes out two years after this with John Travolta mm-hmm. uh, that does not deal with race. And it is based on like, I guess a true account, true story of a particular lawyer. But um, that one revels far more in Travolta being like, like a shit yeah. and being sort of a proud shit. And also he doesn't really, this isn't a spoiler, but like the arc of that character is he doesn't really start to see the light until he loses quite a bit. Like he doesn't come from a place of privilege or success where he can also like get into the viewpoint of these characters that he's trying to defend in this case, minorities. Uh, 
<clears throat> civil action, he's defending the the sick and the dead and right. families who have been stripped of everything. And he has to be stripped of everything. And even then, he still can't experience their loss. But it is like it does. Like I like that journey more where it's like someone that is comfortable will never truly understand those that have experienced great discomfort. Mm-hmm. I don't think Ghost of Mississippi accomplishes that. Uh, I do not think that – you know, I'm trying to think how to not pick on the actors. But Whoopi Goldberg um, – not a good fit. Mm-hmm. Um, I, like it, this is one of those like playing against type right. roles, especially in the nineties. Cause she was, uh, you know, she had some box office relevance. She was an Academy award winner at this point for playing. What I really appreciate is mostly a comedic performance, which is very rare that you see that. Right. Um, but you know, the character, she, she doesn't have a lot to do here. Not very well written. She's basically just stand there and to look either sad or grateful. And Alex just, Baldwin's presence, just love your dead husband. That's your role. That's it. Yeah. Uh, James Woods, it is shocking to me. You kind of, uh, yeah, I think this was off mic. This was on our wrap up for uh, the American president. We were saying, hey, he was nominated for an Oscar for this. And what does that make me just want to talk about the American president more? Because I'm like, wait a minute. You're telling me Martin Sheen couldn't get a best supporting for his great supportive, actual supportive role as a friend. Uh, Net Benning doesn't get like she's to me a classic rom-com performance. Nope, mm-hmm. that's no good. Nope. James Woods, uh, old man makeup and being racist. I don't, I don't get it here. I think it's a like setting aside Woods himself. I think right. it's a really bad performance. Well, there's not a lot anyway. to it. I mean, it's one level. I mean, there's that. And this just goes to, uh, I think the Academy loving to pat itself on its back for, you know, not being racist. It's the same reason slave narratives tend to get nominations and, you know, so do caricatures like this of racists. And I think, I think this movie, like the one, the one thing it makes me think of is just uh, cowardice. Like this feels like a cowardly film in a lot of ways. It it paints, you know, our racist character with the broadest brush possible, which fine, that's been done. But also like it doesn't do, it doesn't do a lot of work with the Alec Baldwin character. Because yes, there is a little bit of like his bias, but they pair it with like his first wife, uh, who's way, like more racist than him and wants him to not do this and and then, like, just randomly in the middle of the movie, without a lot of pomp and circumstance, like, that marriage is removed, and then he hooks up with someone else, and everything's fine. There's not racist. Right. That's nice. <laughs> I found a not racist white lady. That's good. Um, So there's just a lot of choices in here that, like, it doesn't challenge your audience in any way. And I just think this isn't the type of movie that Rob Reiner is suited to. He is more suited to these kind of four-quadrant, like, crowd-pleasing movies, not something that starts a conversation about race in the United States, which is very complex. And he's just, you know, he's just not the right person for it. And it shows here because everything in the, there's not a single thing in here that is challenging. It's all really simplistic. Every note you think it's going to hit is the note it hits. You know, you have the white savior, you have the, the grateful black community, you have the standard, you know, Southern racist. Like it just, everything is like, it's almost like as I was watching, I'm like, I almost didn't need to watch this. I could have told you exactly what every character was going to do. There's not a lot of surprise here. And it's something that sets it apart in a bad way from, you know, I actually just watched uh, a modern movie uh, called Just Mercy, which uh, takes a little bit more of a courageous stand and has to have some white characters make choices that aren't in their best interest um, that actually help people who have been wronged. And this doesn't seem to really go into that at all it's just like oh look at this nice white lawyer uh and it sucks because it's actually a pretty good performance from baldwin and it's one of those this is another one of those actors you forget like oh yeah that guy can really act like he's gone into caricature you know probably everything post 30 rock like 30 rock was probably the start of that uh which was a great performance in its own right but then it just became oh, i'm just going to do comedy i'm going to be on saturday night live you know playing the president i'm going to do this stuff but like back then like oh yeah He's got chops and he really does show it. It's just a it's just a shame that there's not much to support it in terms of script or direction or story. Yeah, and as we've mentioned before, this and this is probably the closest approximation to uh I assume what Reiner is doing now with his mm-hmm. filmography, the stuff that we're we're not covering. because uh, it seems like it's you know, he's he's trying, right? His politics being what they are, like he's uh, he did a movie on uh, 
let's see, yeah, LBJ, 2016. Mm-hmm. I did not see that with Woody Harrelson uh, playing the president there. And 2017, Shock and Awe, also Woody Harrelson. Again, Tommy Lee Jones and James Marston, though. Um, Good cast. Following a group of journalists doing something. Uh, the poster has their faces above the White House uh, with a tagline over the White House being, The Truth Matters. Like, I just don't know why he's uh, I don't going know if this route. This. I just don't know why he's going this route. It's not, it's, because it would be one thing if, like, oh, it's, it's because he's been successful, but he hasn't. This movie cost $40 million to make and made, like, $12 million at the box office. Like, this is not, this is not something where it's like, oh, well, you know, maybe it's not very good, but, like, it's really hit a chord, struck a chord with the public. Like, the only, the only pol- quote-unquote political movie that he's made that really struck a chord What's the American president? And I think it's a it's a case of like taking the wrong lessons from a success. You know, it's not like, oh, he's really good at rom coms. So like, oh well let's let's let him like in the White House all the time. He's a really good political filmmaker. Like, no, just because he's an outspoken liberal doesn't mean he's gonna make great political films. And I think this is kind of proof. And then the rest of these movies down the line. Well, here's a question for you that's uh not really specific to Ghost of Mississippi, but if we're taking this as a preview of where his interests truly lie, because that's, you know, in his later years, that's where he's chosen to make movies like this that are politically minded. <laughs> At what point do you I mean, I think we have really like been positive about the films for this month so far up to like, I don't know if we've actually been negative on any of them until this point. Uh, maybe you with uh, the, the sure thing, uh, yeah. which I thought was just like, OK, you know, for its time, it is what it is. Um, but remember, a thirteen-year-old Mike goes to Mississippi. It was like, nope, this is not good. So I can't say the same about this one. But if that's if that's the type of movies he wants to make, like I guess you know, is it, can you think of another filmmaker or artist where it's like they had a bunch of hits and then they're like just going to settle into like all, now everything is for me. And I don't mean that to come across as selfish because you're used to the like the one for them, one for me sort of back and forth right. with filmmakers in particular. But it seems like he's made enough money, and if he can get people to produce, put up the financing for this stuff, he has no interest in like even attempting to do something that's going to have any sort of box office success. Yeah, I can't really think of any because the only filmmakers I think of where they're like, oh, I'm do- he's doing it for himself, they're or she, um, they're still making money. You know, like I don't think someone like Tarantino is beholden. To many people, but all of his movies have made a shitload of money because he has like a built-in. <laughs> yeah, the, audience, the ones for for him, <laughs> there are a lot of people that really like that version of him. So he's he's right. done it consistently <laughs> throughout. Uh, I was thinking maybe Soderbergh with his like iPhone movie kind mm-hmm. of experiments, but even then, the the ones for them, if we're calling them that, are are not that different from the ones for me because he's right. he's still doing like genre fair. Like his iPhone right. movies have been like thrillers. So and it's when like your movie just costs like, like $12 to make, it's like, you know, there's not a lot of risk. It's not as and I still insane cost a lot of money to put together. Yeah, so. I still want to, to see that one theatrically. Exactly. So it's like, you know, it still did get a wide release. Yeah. Uh, I can't say the same for, I think I was looking at Shock and Awe premiered on like DirecTV or something. Like, yeah, DirecTV Cinema on uh, the summer of 2018. You remember where you were, right? When Shock <laughs> oh, and Awe came to DirecTV. <laughs> I think this is uh, the other thing we're going to have to talk about like before we go into like clip mode with our expert, which actually I'm interested in hear what he has to say about Ghosts of Mississippi because, frankly, I don't ever hear anyone talk about Ghosts of Mississippi, so nope. it's all new to me. Uh, there's a pretty big gap. Like we off the cuff kind of mentioned North being like in between A Few Good Men and American President, but we, we were really like skipping from 1996 to 2007. And... I don't. I, there has to be something in between there that we could we could have done over Coast of Mississippi, but I'm I'm assuming this is like a catch-all for here are all the things that we're not covering because we don't like it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's not that much though that was good. I mean, you know, Coast of Mississippi, not a great movie, obviously, but North is, and I mentioned this on the interview with Hiro, is like widely seen as not only his worst movie but one of the worst movies ever put to film. Like it is just horrible apparently so i'm glad we didn't put ourselves through that um but there's you know there's other movies in there it's just like i guess rumor has it was the only other movie that, Son of a that bitch. We considered. i'm seeing that alex and emma i'm seeing two damn rom-coms and we forced ourselves to go for this 1996 oscar bait i have seen the story of us for my podcast 99 from 99 
That is atrocious. That was worse <laughs> than Ghost of Mississippi. <laughs> I hated that. So I don't know. Maybe I'm talking out both sides of my mouth as I tend to do. That one was uh, pretty bad. Uh, but that, yeah, that's uh, you know I, I think we're we probably are ending with the last one that anyone would recognize as a Rob Reiner yeah. movie if they if they do that at all. The Bucket List was a box office hit. I don't know. I don't know. Was this one successful at all? Other than the weird Oscar nomination for no. James Woods? No, I mean it made this it made not. twelve or thirteen million dollars. It had like a thirty-five or forty million dollar budget. This is a failure. Um, I you know it probably made some money back uh, on rental just because anytime you can throw up nominated for two Academy Awards, you know you'll get people interested. And I, I think I find it interesting that the Academy Awards are for two of the worst parts of the movie to me. It's James Woods and the old age makeup on James Woods, which is horrendous especially like and you know some of it is like you know when you watch it on you know high quality televisions now and like you know you're kind of seeing the the seams of the makeup it can be a little rough but it like it does i don't think it even it would even read as great then you know i just it's i think a lot of times awards tend to nominate these very showy actorly performances and it, you know, it's very racist. It's, he's putting on a heavy accent. Like there's a lot going on, but like, I don't see this as a challenging role at all. I, there had to be better, better performances in that year than James was in it. And this was, of course, as we mentioned before, James Woods went completely off the reservation and lost his mind, uh, and became like the super conservative. So there, there may have been a little bit like, Oh, this guy's been a solid character actor for years. Someone we should like reward his his previous work because he had done some good work up until this point but like this this ain't it like this is not the one like it's pretty good performances uh just i'm just looking at the nominees for that year for best supporting actor the winner was cuba gooding jr for jerry Maguire, which uh while maybe not my particular choice for the nominees you can't argue the fact that he gave us (laughs) his rom-com and he gave us a classic movie moment people will remember they will not remember james woods and goes to mississippi um my pick would have been William H. Macy for a truly evil man in Fargo. I think mm. it's one of the, the best movie villains of all time. Someone like a, a realistic portrayal yeah. of evil. And William H. Macy um, also in this movie, but totally forgettable once again. <laughs> I actually liked him in this. And it was not what I would consider a William H. Macy part. He no. seems like a little tougher. He seems like the most <laughs> masculine guy in the yeah. room. But, yeah. you know, Bill Macy doesn't get a chance to be that. So I kind of, I liked it. I liked his haircut. Like, I don't know, like that, <laughs> all of it. <laughs> um, Armin Mueller stall for shine. I've never seen shine. I know it's no. the Jeffrey rush yeah. thing, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's correct. Right. Uh, Edward Norton primal fear. Uh, this Great was just a very, this was, yeah. this was a category. I, I, from what I know of shine, uh, Armin, there's playing the abusive father, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Cuba Gooding jr plays a decent guy now he is abusive to tom cruise which as we said in our last episode everyone enjoys yep yep uh but he is the closest thing to playing like a good human here uh actually he's considered great if you look at his competitors they (laughs) were all evil men (laughs) and also uh you tell me nice to see back then the academy was actually nominating black people that's good that's uh something they don't do anymore too much don't ever congratulate them for that dave because they will break your heart the next year (laughs) they will (laughs) every time Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Ghost of Mississippi, uh, even if you've not seen it, uh, I don't, there's going to be nothing surprising about this as you kind of alluded to. You've seen movies like this before. Yeah. Um, it's very Oscar Beatty. It's very boring. I agree with you on Alec Baldwin for stretches. He is interesting. Uh, I don't think the movie has the courage to really examine, uh, any of their characters, which also the, you know, the character he's playing, uh, I'm sure was heavily involved, was still, living i think it's still living now mm-hmm. so they weren't going to really expose him like right. the john travolta movie which i really like civil action have you seen the yeah civil it's a action? good one i haven't seen it Sometimes. in years it's but really i remember good. really liking okay. that i want to revisit that because you brought yeah, it up and i was like a, oh yeah civil action also yeah. back when john travolta was taking his career seriously so that was that was a good time <laughs> This, this episode has turned into like people who have disappointed us. Yeah. They used to do nice things, and now we don't like them anymore. Uh, but I'll uh, I'll leave. I guess that's all I've got on Ghost of Mississippi. Um, and we'll we'll fire our last bullet with the bucket list, which this is a this is gonna be a first time watch for me. I did not right. did not get into it during its successful box office run. Even the power of Jack could not bring not me to bring you in. Yeah, just to, Whatever this just is. like one last thing. I think you rating this two stars is perfect because I either wanted it to be a lot better or a lot worse. 
but in yeah. long stretches, yeah. it's just kind of boring and tedious, and certainly not Reiner's best. It's been such an up month that this was like this really took me by surprise that this was so so much lower. Than but we are going to take a break uh, and hear from our expert Hyro of the True Bromance Film Podcast. We'll hear what he thinks about the bucket list before we dive into our last movie of the month. Really was uninterested in it. I think that this movie is a quite for me. Um, this is kind of where Reiner yet. loses me a, a <laughs> bit, right? So mm. I think that even in The Princess Bride and all these movies, there is a realism there that you could connect with that you really um, – even though I'm not you know, in the twilight of my years, this movie sort of loses me right on its premise of I'm going to have six months to live or whatever it is and I'm going to wander off with some dude that I never met you know, before I, I – it just can't connect with me that and the premise alone sort of backs me away other than that the movie's really well done it's you know the actors are fantastic he's obviously playing with stack deck again uh with morgan freeman and jack nicholson but you know as they it's all shot well filmed well yada yada but that initial sort of premise sort of knocks me aback because it's not what i would do All right, so we're back. So now it's time to talk about the bucket list. Um, you mentioned before our break that you had never seen this before, and I'm in the same boat. Uh, this is a movie, and as, as I recall, this movie made like a lot of money. Like this, this movie was very successful, and even if it wasn't, it certainly became a part of the lexicon. Like the bucket list became a thing. Uh, like this list of things that you want to do before you died. It was popularized because of this movie. Uh, but it just kind of missed out on it. It didn't sound like I remember when it came out, like it didn't sound super interesting to me. It didn't sound like in my wheelhouse. And it became one of those like, oh, I'll watch that someday. And then I just never did. I was just kind of never in the mood for it. So this gave me an opportunity to, to see it. And it's it's all right. It's fine. It's not <laughs> the the worst podcast material yes, you can give us. Exactly. Is... <laughs> it's um, fine. It, you know, it it succeeds on the the two lead personalities of the movie. Like, I think if you don't have a Jack Nicholson and a Morgan Freeman here, I think this movie, like, just falls flat on its face which within the first 20 minutes. Uh, but because you have that kind of cult of personality to go with both of these actors, you're willing to go on go on this ride with them. And it works well enough. It's a, you know, it is, it does feel like a movie you could show anybody. You know, it's not going to offend anybody. It's not going to go over the top. It's, it's going to have a nice message. And it does. And, you know, Nicholson is always kind of an enjoyable presence. I think it, there's a leap that it takes in the very beginning that you either have to get on board with or not. Um, and that's going to determine whether you have a good time with this. The fact that like these two are total strangers and, you know, Freeman's just going to like leave his life, leave his wife behind and be like, okay, it's on your dime. Let's go. Let's have a good time. <laughs> like, I think it makes more sense. One, if Freeman isn't married. Or if, like, somehow there was a connection between these two, like, 40 years in the past and they happen to get thrown into the same, into the same room. But the fact that they're complete strangers makes it a bit of an ask for your audience. Yeah, I, I did not come into this thinking that we were going to have, uh, one of the guys, you know, with a family with, with Morgan Freeman. Now, uh, you, you give me just a brief, few moments with the Jack Nicholson character and I can believe that he is in exile from his his family Uh, given you know and it's a weird time to be discussing it because I I watched this uh, way back during the holidays uh, which is I think more appropriate for this type of material I could see this over the Christmas season I could see why it was a hit because it's you know it's uh, sentimental comfort food. Like, yeah. you know, it's, it's trying to give you a few laughs and give uh, some people a few good cries, but you know, watching it now with uh, Nicholson's character, uh, owning hospitals, running hospitals, Ooh. like <laughs> eh, this is not good pandemic watching like his, his view of monetizing, uh, people's, uh, you know, ill health, but they, they quickly kind of move past that. And you're like, okay, this is just a setup for old guys to, have their like kind of crazy hangover style adventures. Now 
for whatever reason, that didn't appeal to me when this came out in 2007. But uh, there was a movie with Michael Douglas, and I think I think it's Morgan Freeman again. I remember Kevin Klein called Las Vegas. You oh, heard of this one? yeah, 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 yeah. I do Where remember it's, that. It's wow. old guys. Uh, Probably haven't thought about going... that since it came out, but. That was an early, I think an early movie pass, a uh, swipe of the card for me where I'm like, sure, it's, it's already paid for. So let's, let's do it. Yeah. Morgan Freeman's in that with uh, De Niro. Like, isn't that sad that De Niro was the fourth one I couldn't remember? I could remember Kevin Klein and not De Niro. Uh, that's probably because the Irishman was so silly that oh, he's now. <laughs> come on. I was you know going to say because he seems above things like that. I'm like, <laughs> I will I will grant you that Las Vegas is much, much better than the Irishman. I will, I will give you that. He is definitely above those type of things. Um, <laughs> but, but I think it's just a uh, depends on the point in your life you are like for your age group. Like this seemed the bucket list seemed just far too old for me. I would have been like 20, 25 when this came out. And I'm like, eh, whatever. Let let the grumpy old men crowd have it, <laughs> even though that's unfair to grumpy old men because I just purchased movie. that. For for ten bucks, they had the double on iTunes, and I'm like, I texted our mutual friend Webb and said, "This is a great day," and he, I don't think he thought it was a great day, just because Grumpy Old Men One and Two runs out for ten bucks. Wow, but that's a pretty good deal, five bucks a movie. <sighs> Down. I, I'm with you though, like because uh, I, I pull up my Letterbox review and that three stars. I'm like, I, I don't like or dislike this. I mean, there are certainly elements of it I dislike. I am like you. I'm kind of uncomfortable that Morgan Freeman just tells his life partner. I need a break from you. I was facing death and I got like a taste of like never being with you again, like going into the black void. And I think I'd like to keep yeah. that going. So I that's really enjoyed my much. time that's in the not... hospital when you weren't there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Jesus. Um, I, I think uh, the stuff with, with Nicholson, there is like some minor enjoyment I have because what I, what I posted on letterbox was Jack Nicholson learning. He's got six months to live and still telling the bearer of bad news, the physician, uh, to stop blocking the baseball game is worth something moment. to me. Like I understood, I understood where he was coming from in that that regard. Um, some of the negatives, their adventures oftentimes look cheap. Like they mm-hmm. just don't. It doesn't look like uh, Reiner had his uh, budget of old for this. No, uh, it is silly. It's as silly as uh, Robert De Niro throwing a punch in the Irishman. You know, it's not quite as bad. Yeah. <laughs> just, Look, Dave, you can't launch uh, into a conversation saying it's fine, and you're like going to leave me with like, okay, what punches can I throw here? Let's go back to the <laughs> let's go back to the podcast directed by a syndication. Let's go back yes. to the classic episodes <laughs> and relitigate that. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I could. This is one of those. If people tell me they enjoy this, I'd understand it. If people told me, hey, that's dog shit, I'd nod my head as well. All and right. that's not just me trying to befriend both of them, but I could see it either way. Yeah, it's. As I was watching the movie, uh, one thing that I really noticed about it, other than it does look cheap, it definitely does. You're right on that score. Is that, I don't know, I felt like the this Irishman, movie, you mean. No, stop it. <laughs> um, I felt like this movie needed more conflict. Like I was, I was just like sitting around and the movie's like almost over. There's like 20 minutes left and like, and I'm sitting there like, no one's, are they just going to hang out until they die? Like, is that the, is that the point of this movie? And then right then they have their like very forced kind of fight and breakup scene and, you know, and then they kind of wrap it all up like maybe too quickly. I felt like if that had happened, like, I don't know, 15 or 20 minutes earlier, it's a little more convincing, but like you have to understand like as a, as a filmmaker that like, yes, people should come in totally blind and just like take the story as it is, but we have an internal clock in our heads. Like we know the, generally we know the structure of movies so we're kind of like thinking like oh yeah this is probably almost over like what is why like and i think great films need conflict like you need something you you need stakes you need something to be scared of and the only you know the stakes here uh are set in the very beginning like okay these these men are dying that's the stakes but in their relationship there's not much because it's just like because nicholson's character is so rich they'd be like we can do anything we can go anywhere first class everywhere best things here you know and like you know and one of the big fights is like he tries to strikes to get him to cheat on his wife i guess that's the <laughs> that's his like moment of truth and it was just like none of this feels like there's anything to hold on to uh but in terms of how well this movie did i just looked it up it had a 40 45 million dollar budget um and it made uh 175 million dollars so this was a truly a gigantic hit uh especially given that 
you know, like we both talked about, us both being in our 20s when this came out, this isn't a movie that, like, teenagers and 20-somethings are going to rush out to see. This is very much for the older crowd. And, of course, the older crowd does tend to buy a lot of movie tickets. Like, if you... If you're a movie watcher, when we still had theaters, when we could go to them, um, if you went to a lot of movies, you would see a lot of people, you know, 60, 65 and up. You know, whether it's like, you know, they're retired, they have the time to go see movies, but they are the biggest supporters of the arts that we have in our country. So it makes sense. And then it, I think, slowly must have kind of trickled down younger and younger and younger. And it's, you know, it's one of those movies that's like, like you said, it's, I can totally understand the perspective of like, oh, this was just like a nice... This is a nice couple hours. We had a good time with actors that I really like. Both Morgan Freeman and Jack Nicholson are known commodities um, and kind of like comforting commodities uh, in terms of actors, especially Morgan Freeman. Like he is that kind of like as an actor, he's just like he's comfortable. He's like, you know, like, oh, he feels warm. This is someone I can connect with. And Nicholson is like the lovable rogue as he's been, you know, probably since the early 70s. So they both fit into those caricatures very well. So I could see someone enjoying it, but I just... I have trouble taking anything from this. Like there's not this, I mean, it's only been maybe two or three weeks since I watched it. And I'm like, was there anything really that memorable in this movie? Like maybe the, the car scene that was good. We're know. real, uh, real professionals here, folks. We're like, uh, we are the demographic demographic for this. What are you talking about? You two weeks since you've watched this and you're like, what happened? What's going on? Like, yeah, we, we're but I don't think moving that's because of my territory. memory. I think that's just because the movie is kind of not that memorable. There's just like, do you ever worry you're consuming far too many movies? It's, it's not your age, but it's just like, man, there's I mean, just a lot of content. going <laughs> There into. is a lot for sure. Uh, but no, Mike, never, never too many movies. We have a podcast where mm-hmm. we watch mm-hmm. five to ten movies. I think the problem month. is us. <laughs> yeah. I, I think my uh, another issue I have with the movie is the Sean Hayes character. Uh, don't. Well, OK, what is your ugh, here? Because I, I don't I don't understand his. I, I just assume he's incredibly financially compensated to take the right. abuse. Yeah, that's the thing. Here. It's like, unless he's in line to inherit his money when he dies, I'm like, <laughs> dude, it might be time to walk away. Like, this is not worth it. Like, but it, I mean, the only purpose he really serves in the movie is to have someone challenge Jack, which is enjoyable. Mm-hmm. But like, from a like realistic perspective, like that's the job you quit. Like that's <laughs> unless you're making yeah, like after you're financially secure. Yeah, in some unless way. you're making yeah. you know three four hundred grand a year, you you need to walk away from that kind of mistreatment. Like it's it's time to go. Which maybe he is, you know. Check the, he owns hospitals. You know, it's uh, he's making a lot of money. So maybe. or maybe he's just he's just uh, you know he is counting down the days because this is a movie called The Bucket List. So it's like oh my asshole boss boss that pays oh, me well. <laughs> it's gonna end soon. Might just well. run out the clock. That's you right. Know? Spread the floor, dribble around a little bit. (laughs) That's it. Uh, I I don't know if the movie, one thing I do like about it is uh, I don't think that Jack Nicholson ever has that total turn where it's like, oh, he learned enough life lessons while they're basically fucking around and spending a fortune. Like even as you said, you get late in the game. He's still relatively unlikable character. I mean, Mm -hmm. he, he has his moments where it's like, he clearly has an. Uh, he has just the proper, I guess, or maybe not proper is the right word, but he has just enough decency in him that he is doing something for his fellow man. Now he gets to participate in all of this and this this shit show of them traveling across the globe. But yeah, I mean, he is he is trying to reach out in a way that he probably hasn't before. Um, I I appreciate that about the movie because I did think we were going to have a full on 180 for him, where it's right. like, you know, what has my life been about and don't really. I mean, the movie's just barely, in, you know, over an hour and a half, right. like ninety-seven minutes. That's quick. That's yeah. you know, I'll give them credit. They knew their audience was gonna have to get and pee multiple times, so they. <laughs> oh no, Mike! <laughs> I mean, you might be right. Their own bucket on. list was to see the bucket list before they died. Holiday season two thousand seven. Finally made it. <laughs> You should feel bad about that, Mike. Uh, for our listening audience, Mike just had his head in his hands at his own jokes. So that is. <laughs> well, is that the, really the proper time for me to be discussing it, you know, in the midst of a pandemic? I, I even told you, hey, we, we can't record these as, as far in advance uh, because we don't know what death is coming our way. And you were like, oh, yeah, actors were talking about it. And I'm like, no, us, Dave. No, we could, <laughs> the world. We could be next. That's, yeah. That's a good point. 
yeah, so the bucket list. Uh, I repeat, it's fine. All right. Uh, so that is our our month on Rob Reiner. So now we're gonna get to to Mike's favorite part of the part of the month. Every month. Ugh, so happy to, about this. I had to pull up the quip document to be like, <laughs> what do we do again? Oh yeah, this this segment. <laughs> so let's roll this one out again. <laughs> so this is where we choose, you know, our favorite of the bunch, what we think is the best, and what is the masterpiece. And just as a reminder, the movies we covered: This is Final Tap, The Sure Thing. Stand by me, The Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally, Misery, A Few Good Men, The American President, Ghost of Mississippi, and The Bucket List. So, Mike, what is your favorite Rob Reiner movie? It's actually, you know, I think all three of these are tough. Usually, I have mm-hmm. a pretty good idea when you, you know, you give me three, you give me three choices, and like you go back to our Scorsese. Yeah, you know, this is the the Rob Reiner syndication month. I was like, yeah, I could take, I could move the three around and call any of them best masterpiece, what have you. Mm-hmm. Uh, my favorite, I, I, you know, I guess I'll just go to the, the one I I return to the most uh, as as my my favorite, and that is Misery. Strangely, mm-hmm. like even with the American president being in here, uh, I I think that I, you know, I have enough enough rom-coms that I can diversify as far as mm-hmm. like, as just being a fan of the genre. And even with that being one of my favorites, I don't return to it nearly as much as I do with misery, <laughs> which is really kind of the oddball. I feel yeah. like in this, this list, like trying to peg down a genre, like I couldn't put this in the masterpiece category. Cause I don't know if this gives you a good idea of what you're getting with a Rob Reiner movie. Like right. it has a little bit of everything. But when we discussed it, it's like this twisted romance, dark humor, uh, it's a thriller. It's a horror movie. Um, and it's a lot of fun. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's why, because I have a hard time thinking of another movie that hits all those beats. Yeah. So that's why I keep returning to it. This is almost like an annual watch for me. D- certainly during like the Halloween season, this is like the nice palate cleanser change of pace because you can quickly get into you know, slasher territory or supernatural territory and you kind of get burnout on it. Uh, but this is one that I, I never have any burnout for. And, right. you know, Kathy Bates was one of those. <laughs> to borrow the thinking from Hiro, this is probably the closest. This is my compliment to him. This is the closest I'll ever come to understanding the expert, understanding that man, the twisted man uh, that <laughs> that loves the Jack Nicholson character in A Few Good Men, that loves Simmons and Whiplash. I I kind of am a defender of Kathy Bates. I understand her viewpoint. <laughs> I get what she's like working with you on this podcast. I understand trying to get the best <laughs> of someone who just will not will not listen to you know the the ultimate fan. So yeah, yeah. This I feel is like uh, usually those roles are switched, Mike. Usually I'm the one pulling you along to make sure we record. I definitely feel so. hobbled by your podcast. <laughs> I know that. Yes, love it. That is the entire goal. Absolutely. Yeah, that is my favorite. Misery yeah. is my favorite of the Rob Reiner filmography. I mean, it's it's interesting this month because we talked about, you know, maybe there's not as much of an auteur going on here and a lot of them are crowd pleasers. It does make the choices more difficult because I can look at, I would say, four or five of the ten movies we watched and be like, oh, any of these could be favorite especially. But I think the one I'm going to go with is The Princess Bride. Uh, and similar to reasons why you pick Misery, this is the one I always go back to. This may be the movie I've watched the most out of any movie, like throughout my lifetime, because this is one that has stuck with me since I was much younger. And, you know, like you mentioned about Misery, it just doesn't get old to me. Like I could just, I could, you know, I just watched this for the podcast. I could throw it on right now and be totally entertained. And it's also one of those movies that you can put on for anybody. Like, uh, except apparently um, our mutual quote unquote friend, Andrew, uh, who's not a fan of the Princess Bride, he admitted to me uh, over text just yesterday. And I was like, he says, is this a good time to mention that I'm not a fan of that? I was like, no, you should delete this text. Why would you, why would you admit to that? Well, and now you've just outed him to yeah, the, uh, he the millions it. that listen to yes. us. So <laughs> yes, he, he is the man with a, a target on his back. Yeah, for sure. I feel, I feel sorry for him in Australia. Yeah. He, Go out to the outback somewhere, <laughs> live with the kangaroos. Yes. I don't know. Whatever, that's go, what he does normally anyway. Go into so hiding. He'll, he'll be fine. Yeah, but it just, you know, as we talked about on that episode, it kind of has everything. You know, it's got the adventure. It's got the romance. It's got the comedy. It's got the action. Like, it just it just works on kind of all levels. And it's a movie that I find myself going back to. It's kind of the ultimate comfort movie. So that's going to be favorite. So, Mike, what is Rob Reiner's best movie? 
I think this one was the easiest for me, and I haven't said it at the uh, the top of our month. Uh, this is Spinal Tap is the one that I'm most impressed with as mm-hmm. as a director because I feel. You know, you, you give me the pitch here, and I'm like, yeah, that could sound incredibly unfunny. Like, that could well, wear out its welcome really fast. Uh, and then we're also talking about uh, this being early in his filmmaking career where he's, you know, he's trying things out. You know, he's still, as we sort of, you know, guessed that he probably is still uh, getting the opportunity more as a comedic performer coming off of sitcoms in the 70s. So he's he's front and center as the filmmaker within the, the film uh, I, I think that, I, you know, I wonder how much I didn't for this podcast. I'm sure, I think I just owned this on iTunes, but I didn't pull out, I've got a DVD copy somewhere. Like, I wonder how much extra footage they have. So there probably was, was a lot more in the way of choices as a filmmaker, as far as which bits to use, you know, there's not, there's not a clear narrative structure to it. Like you could see it going many different ways. They do impose that a little bit, which I like that, that sort of brotherhood between these two guys and the, the sort of uh, falling part of their their friendship as they, <laughs> I don't know, fail upwards. I don't know what <laughs> what you could say with Spinal Tap and as far as their arc of that fictional band's career. But I just imagine that there was a lot that he had on his table as far as how we can prune this or how we can shape it. And so I, I have to say that one's the best. Yeah. Like I, I, I wouldn't say masterpiece because it's it's also a comedic oddball. Like it, yeah. I, it spawned a ton of stuff that he didn't follow up on. You right. know, like it, the, the actual the lead performer carried that torch more as far as Christopher Guest and his what he's known for, which is the interesting thing about like looking at the list. Like because when you're coming, like the hardest one I have is masterpiece because I feel mm-hmm. like he is a true collaborator. So if you want to say this is Spinal Tap, you're like, well, uh, one of the the actors actually is kind of known more for that style of humor and style of films, and you have like. You know, the, the Stephen King adaptations and he had the same, you know, uh, relationship with his screenwriters and William Goldman, uh, Nora Ephron, Aaron Sorkin. We've talked about a lot, uh, you know, the, the month of auteurs for assholes where there are just two assholes, me and Dave. This is where <laughs> there's no auteur. Um, but I, I think that this one is the easiest for me. I, I'll just admit to you right now that I'm still looking at the list and debating on mm-hmm. Masterpiece because I don't I don't really know. I don't really know what I would say is like, hey, this is the definitive Rob Reiner movie. You'll get a clear picture of who this guy is. So I should probably have you go first on that one. Just give well, me a I haven't time. even done my I'm best gonna... yet, so hold on there, buddy. Well, I was trying – okay, I'm, I'm now done with Spinal Tap. It's, it is okay. very good. Right. Very um, good, so now it's the best. So for me, the best is uh, actually Stand By Me. Um and I think it is, I think it's a movie that is really challenging for a director on a couple, on a couple levels. One, that it's an adaptation of a Stephen King novel, although he did that again with Misery, which could, yeah, I was kind of going back and forth actually between Misery and Stand By Me. Uh, and I think what, what sets Stand By Me apart for me is the fact that he adds the extra challenge of working with a bunch of fucking kids. Um, in these lead roles and they all are really, they're all really talented, but he manages to like cast them all correctly and wrangle them all correctly into these just tremendous performances. Like if you take out, uh, River Phoenix, it's probably like the best performance of any of these actors careers. Like this is, this is the best it gets for all of these actors. And that's not necessarily a shot at those actors. This is just tremendously well-balanced and well-paced. And, you know, you've got the extra bonus of, you know, Richard Dreyfus as the narrator really, like, kind of uh, grounding everything and really hits that nostalgia button regardless of what time period it's set in. And it ends really perfectly, which is something that's really difficult for any Stephen King adaptation. Uh, and as you mentioned on that episode, I like that they even kind of play with that idea in the, like, story within a story that's being told about everyone complaining about the ending. And it's just like, it is... I also like that it, you know, he does make crowd pleaser films and the, the only negative of that is sometimes you don't run the gamut of emotions in this film. It's very, it's not very subtle. It's like we know what we're going for and we get it. Whereas this, I think, has a lot more nuance to it. Uh, so I think that's what sets it apart. And that's also why I wouldn't call it his masterpiece because it's, it's very different for me from the rest of his, his filmography that we've covered. So are you ready to talk about masterpiece or should I give mine? I think you should give yours because I'm okay. I'm still I'm looking at I mean this is a credit to him which I mean we have to all right I'm I'm just gonna name the three that I assume are not coming up at all which is <laughs> the sure thing bucket list 
Yeah, bucket yeah. list, sure thing. Go to Mississippi. Uh, so that that should make it easier, right? But then I'm looking at you know not including the two I've mentioned, Misery and this is Spound Tap. A uh, few good men when Harry met Sally, Princess Bride, American President. I don't know, dude. So yeah, you go first, and maybe I'll just be disagreeable with you. Yes, so I, I fully expect that you will be. Um, to me, the masterpiece is when Harry met Sally. Um, as you very astutely mentioned, he does have great relationships with his screenwriters. Um, but I think his his relationship with Nora Ephron and the movie that they created is not only one of the classics of the genre, but just a great movie aside from genre and feels genuine. Um, it, it, and you very rarely get romantic comedies from writers who have suffered a divorce. And I think that all comes through here. And yet it still managed to be that four quadrant crowd pleaser. And that is something that's truly rare that you get a great film that also is kind of available for everybody. A lot of times these like films that make a lot of money and do really well, you know, quote unquote cinephiles will look at and kind of sneer at and be like, well, it's not actually a good movie. It's it's I guess it's fun, but it's not actually good. Whereas this kind of runs it it has one foot in each of in each of those sides, you know, and and I think but it also has the relationship aspect, it has the humor, it has the terrific casting, it really does feel like a Rob Reiner movie at its core. So for me, when Harry met Sally, I mean, and when Harry met Sally, honestly, I could have put this in any of the three categories. This could have been favorite. This could have been best. Uh, but I do really think it fits for his masterpiece for me. So what about you? Did I give you enough time to figure out your answer and to fight with me? Uh, not really, but I, I mean, I will do the, the latter, I guess. I, I'm going to go with a few good men as his masterpiece. And I think mainly, I mean, cause I'm not mentioning the American president. So in my personal rankings, misery and this is Spinal tap are one, two, and the American president is three of, of his filmography. Uh, I only know that because I looked at my list from three months ago on Letterboxd. I'm like, how did I have these ranked? So that you can tell how definitive that is in my head <laughs> where I have to double check my notes. But I had a hard time with the American president, the princess bride and when Harry met Sally, because you're like, okay, so he's like a rom-com guy, but all three of those rom-coms feel decidedly different. Like they don't feel like it's like, you're going to get the best sense, even though he has been very successful in this genre. And so the thing I kept falling back to was just sort of classic, almost studio system movie making. You get a lot of movie stars. You have a great screenwriter, and he's definitely a guy that wants to talk about ideas. Even in something like When Harry Met Sally, it's the ideas these two characters are bouncing off each other of what their ideal life could look like. <laughs> but they're bouncing it off with another like misanthrope <laughs> for most <laughs> of the, the film. Uh, Princess Bride is a fantasy, obviously. like It is set in a, a fantasy world. Uh, the American president, same thing for liberals, I guess. So... I kept coming back to A Few Good Men because I feel like it has probably the most mass appeal and it, it crosses over probably more boundaries and it does it with a genre that I don't like as much with like rom-coms. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of an easy sell courtroom drama. Like even when you said that, I like got this like bad taste in my mouth. Like the only <laughs> one I could think of that I'm like <laughs> truly passionate about is uh, the verdict with Paul Newman is my favorite mm. uh, courtroom drama of all time. And that's, that's something that I would really hope that uh, comes up on the, on does, this podcast. Does at 12 some angry point. men count as a courtroom drama. Or is that like a juror room? Drama? Yeah. Yeah. You know what? We'll throw it in there. I guess, I mean, you, you are removing a lot of the, uh, <laughs> the boring bits with 12 angry men. Cause it's just sweaty guys yelling at each other. So <laughs> there's nothing procedural about it. Right. There's no right. middleman to like interfere with the yelling. Uh, a Few Good Men is, is hard, hard to beat, and it's almost like the most nostalgic pick for me that you could cast movie stars, great script, mm -hmm. and you could do something that is kind of stagey, and it is something you've kind of seen before, and it is pulled off in such a, a masterful way, and such a, going back to Misery, such an entertaining way, too, because I don't, you know, I, I, as much as I loved uh, Zero Dark Thirty, and you and I did a podcast on that for War Machine versus War Horse, and we, I think we had two other movies on the show that we barely talked about because yeah. we just want to talk about Zero Dark Thirty. <laughs> so I could defend uh, torture. <laughs> well, okay, yeah, that's where I was going. I, I'm trying to imagine a movie that's primarily like the hook is, "Hey, this guy was tortured to death." It's really fun. 
It's got a lot of good lines in it, and <laughs> you can you know you know take out the uh, the wife and kids, and everybody can probably enjoy it. Like you know, I'd say anyone that's twelve and older probably could watch this. Like you know, if they can follow along with you know Jack Nicholson spitting all over Tom Cruise <laughs> when he's screaming at him. Right. Uh, I I don't know. Like there's there's something wistful about uh, a few good men. That I'm like, wow, I don't think we'll get that type of movie anymore. So I think uh-huh. it defines Reiner from a very particular point in time uh, when this was not seen as special. Like, I don't think a few good men was seen. As, I think it was well received, but I don't think it was seen as some sort of strange outlier. Um, it's almost like, you know, film noir or something from going back to like the forties and fifties. Like, and it's, it's strange to say it is a very depressing time that I can look at a few good men and be like, where are the movies like this Where's anymore? The and they're, they're not yeah. there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The fun stuff about torture. You know, yeah, I can't it's... go a day where I don't want something fun about torture. My goodness. Uh, yeah, it's very tough. I mean, I could have picked, you know, there's, Six of these I could have right. I could have probably have picked for this, um, and boy the uh, the ones on this episode are not it. No, <laughs> it's a hell of a way to end. Finish. That is yeah. for yeah. sure. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so that is our month on Rob Reiner. Um, and a couple things. One very interesting that you brought up uh, film noir because that's where we're going next uh, with Ida Lupino. Um, and I'm luckily, a professional at this, Dave. You are I know very what good. I speak uh, and, luckily, and how much you hate women. I previewed yes, that as well yes. next month. Luckily, people, if you want to catch up with these movies, I think just about all of them are available for free on YouTube. Um, I think I found most of them there. There was like maybe one that I had to search a little bit for, but most of them were readily available. And right in Mike's wheelhouse, most of them are like 87 minutes and, and less. So and Mike's, Christ. Mike's very happy. Yes. Um, but before we talk about the, you know, the schedule for, for next month, uh, we also wanted to mention that we're going to change things up for for the show a little bit and for the Patreon. So before, the interview with our expert was only on the Patreon. So now what we're going to do is have that interview available to everybody, do four episodes, and then we'll have an extra episode of a movie or two for our patrons specifically. So you'll get to hear those full interviews uh, from now on. Um, so the interviewer that we're interviewee that we're going to have next month, uh, her name is Julie Grossman. She actually wrote a book on Ida Lupino, so she will have a lot more knowledge than I have uh, because uh, I hadn't seen a single one of these movies uh, going in. So it'll be uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to do some research before I talk to her, so I don't come off like stupider than I usually am. So let's let's. Chris Farley that. show coming up. Yeah, first episode of this exactly. this change in the podcast. Cool. That was great. Uh, so the movies that we're going to end up covering, including the patron episode, are Not Wanted, Never Fear, Outrage, The Hitchhiker, and The Bigamist. So those are going to be the movies for Ida Lupino. Um, I think that is all but two of her movies. Uh, we left those other two out because they were pretty obviously kind of director for hire jobs, and we wanted to stick with the auteur. Um, so we're sticking with kind of most of the, mostly the film noir aspect of uh, Ida Lupino. So if you would like to hear more from us, you can follow us on Twitter at DirectedByPod. And if you want access to those extra episodes, uh, you can go to our Patreon site and donate as little as a dollar per month and get access to those. And that uh, website address is patreon.com slash a podcast directed by. Thank you.